This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Fidelity, financial planning that moves with your life. Learn more at fidelity.com slash your goals. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSC SIPC. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. This is Cleve Lutzen with The Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, October 9th. Today, the White House refuses to cooperate with the impeachment inquiry, China's crackdown on Uyghurs, and celebrating the lithium-ion battery. Is the White House cooperating with Congress's impeachment inquiry? In a word, no. Well, first of all, the impeachment inquiry is a scam. The White House has made very clear that they think this impeachment inquiry is illegitimate. The people understand it's a scam. They're trying to win an election in 2020. Unconstitutional. You look at that call. It's a perfect call. Violates due process and fairness and everything else that you can possibly think of. That's Karin Demergen. I'm on the national security team and I cover those issues on Capitol Hill. Karin has been reporting on the Congressional Democrats' impeachment inquiry into President Trump and the Trump administration's efforts to block it. They have made their opinions known very clearly to Nancy Pelosi and the heads of the three House committees that are most intricately involved in this proceeding right now in this eight-page letter in which they basically say, go pound sand because we are not going to help you because we do not recognize that this is a legitimate process. So tell me about what the Democrats are trying to get a hold of that basically caused the White House to respond with this letter that said, go pound sand. Right. Well, we know in general that Congress and House Democrats especially have had issues with the White House since Trump took office about getting people to testify, getting documents to be produced to the Hill in a timely manner. So that's kind of like the baseline of what we had here. But in the last two weeks, the House Intelligence Committee, Foreign Affairs Committee, and Oversight Committees have been trying to bring in a series of current and former State Department officials for depositions as part of this impeachment inquiry. They were successful last week in bringing in the former special U.S. envoy to Ukraine, Kurt Volker, who actually quit that job hours after he was asked to come in. He spoke to them. He provided a series of text messages to them, some of which were put out. You had a experienced diplomat working for free uh, as special envoy in Mr. Uh, Volker, uh, who in many ways uh, was a front for work that was being done uh, on the side, uh, parallel to his efforts uh, by Rudy Giuliani. Uh, and as a follow-up, they wanted to talk to the U.S. ambassador to the European Union, Gordon Sondland, who's kind of unofficially in charge of Ukraine issues, too. And he was going to come in, we thought, until there was a 12.30 a.m. phone call from the administration to his lawyer saying, you're not allowed to go. And so mm-hmm. all of a sudden, it's yanked at the very last minute. And the White House decided to respond to that situation by putting their implied opinions in writing and basically challenging the House to more formally start this impeachment inquiry with a vote on the floor. And they don't think that this is fair until that happens. So let's talk more about this letter that came out on Tuesday. It's an eight-page letter. I think what stood out to me was the fact that it's just so... 
vociferous, so political, like really coming after the Democrats. This is a letter that's not just making legalistic arguments, but is saying Democrats are out to get the president. Yeah. I mean, look, from the White House lawyer to be putting this out, this is not so much a legal document as it is a political screed. And I think that that's part of what's so remarkable about it. In a way, it fits the moment, right? I mean, when we talk about impeachments, we're talking about legal processes, but fundamentally it's a political process. And that means that you are never going to have real purity. There's a quote from the letter. It says, Your highly partisan and unconstitutional efforts threaten grave and lasting damage to our democratic institutions, to our system of free elections, and to the American people. And they just make it clear that they're not going to give over anything if they have anything to say about it. No, they're not. And it's also remarkable that they are not saying even if you do this, we will give you what you want. I mean, this is really a microcosm marker of the standoff, and it does not necessarily lay out any sort of path for what the White House is saying they would need to see if they were to ever agree to cooperate. This is a standoff par excellence that does not seem to be heading towards any sort of resolution or common ground. So how are Democrats responding to this letter so far? And do they have the power to get a hold of these witnesses and these documents, even if the White House is going to try to block them? The failure to produce this witness, the failure to produce these documents, we consider yet additional strong evidence of obstruction of the constitutional functions of Congress, a co-equal branch of government. Well, you saw Speaker Pelosi and Adam Schiff, who's the chair of Intelligence Committee, saying very strong, very strong terms. They think it's the administration who's at fault here and not them. And by preventing us from hearing from this witness and obtaining these documents, the president and secretary of state are taking actions that prevent us from getting the facts needed to protect the nation's security. But, you know, to answer the second part of your question, you really have to say, okay, yes, there are remedies for fighting this out. You can subpoena if subpoenas are flouted. You can pursue contempt proceedings. You can go to court to try to enforce them. You can try to skip over and around court if you want to revive Congress's inherent contempt powers to either throw somebody in a small cell in the basement of the Capitol or, more likely, issue and levy fines. But... Doing that requires time. And the one thing that Democrats seem to not believe that they have, because they are looking at the calendar that leads to November 2020 like everybody else is, is time. And if you're trying to truncate this all and do it on a six-week to two-month schedule, you don't have time to let the remedies and the court processes and everything else play out. Because, as we know, it takes forever. And I think that one thing that Democrats are also really aware of is this sense of public sentiment, right? Are people on board with this impeachment inquiry? And if they are, that maybe buys them a little bit more time. But if they're not, then there's a sense that people will lose patience if this takes too long. So what is our sense about how regular people are feeling about this? Well, this is the art of politics, right? I mean, The Post and The Shar School just put out a poll this week that showed for the first time that a majority of Americans, I think the margin was 58 percent to 38 percent, are in favor of this impeachment inquiry. That does not mean that 58 percent would say, you know, they're going to vote to convict, but they do support the House and what they're doing right now. And that is significant because you saw for months on end as Democrats were coming out, Speaker Pelosi was just refusing, refusing to give way to that tide because she was saying this isn't what voters care about. Voters care about the health care and the economy and trade and prescription drugs and things like that. And, and she's still talking in those terms, even in the last few days. But 
it seems like the momentum is now going in the favor of the House Democrats. The challenge is, can they keep that up? Because they have to not have those numbers ricochet all the way back over the next 13 months if they Mm -hmm. actually want to maintain the high ground of the impeachment inquiry, whether they're able to uncover so much more that they can make an ironclad case to either party or if they just say, look, we couldn't turn away from this and we had to do it. They have to make sure the public stays with them. Otherwise, it's potentially, you know, a grenade in their hands as they're trying to make their case for the election. So Congress is back in session next week. What do we expect will start to unfold? I think we're going to hear more noise about this. I mean, this is all kind of epicentered in these three panels, Intel Foreign Affairs Oversight, Intel seems to be calling the shots here for the most part. But there's a lot of big personalities all around the Hill in both parties, and they are going to have a say. And ultimately, this has to go to House Judiciary if they're going to write articles of impeachment. Maybe you'll see some more headway on people starting to take preparatory moves on those lines. And the environment that we're in can affect the way that the public perceives all of this. That also could govern how this ends up developing and metastasizing or not over the next few months. But as you say, if it, if it's looking more likely that the House is going to take a vote on impeachment, does that come after there's all these hearings that the people that they're trying to get to come up on the Hill finally get to the Hill or that there's a conclusion to a lot of these legal arguments? Or is there a point at which Democrats will say, even if the White House is blocking us, even if we can't get all the information we want to get right now, we feel like we have enough to just say, we're going to go ahead and vote on this? Right. Well, this is part of the debate, right? There's been a lot of Democrats, including leading Democrats, who have said, we feel like we have enough to show what the intention was and the implied quid pro quo, as they put it, even in just the transcript of the July 25th phone call and the president's own public statements asking Ukraine to investigate Biden, China to investigate Biden, et cetera. I don't think that the case needs to be made to House Democrats so much anymore as it needs to be made to Senate Republicans. If anything that they can find in addition to this to bolster that case, if there's something else that is more damning potentially, that then starts to maybe win you over a few reluctant Republicans in the Senate. And in that case, it's a more existential challenge to the president than what is ultimately at this point still a partisan tug of war over whether he did right or wrong. But that's a judgment call that the House Democrats are going to have to make. It does not seem like they are going to get everything or even 75% of what they want out of the White House here. So when do they say enough is enough? Because enough time has gone by and we just have to do it if we're going to do it at all. But is that going to be enough to convince Senate Republicans that there are high crimes and misdemeanors here? Uh, That's less clear. Karin Demergen reports on Congress for The Post. Who are you and what do you do? I'm Anna Fifield. I am the Beijing bureau chief for The Washington Post. Anna has been reporting on how the Chinese government is targeting a Muslim minority called the Uyghurs. The Uyghurs are this ethnic minority in western China in the Xinjiang region. There's about 11 million people in this population, which is a Turkic ethnicity. They speak a Turkic language and have an entirely different culture from the main Han Chinese culture. And that difference is driving a campaign by the Chinese government, a campaign that Anna says has gotten more aggressive. But over the past three or so years, 
authorities in China have been attempting basically to sinicize the Uyghurs, to make them part of the Chinese majority in some way. And so this has involved trying to make sure everybody speaks Chinese uh, at its lower end. Uh, but at its worst end, it has involved this campaign of very brutal, uh, it's called re-education or training by the Chinese authorities, but basically internment in these huge camps between 1 million and 3 million Uyghurs have been detained in these camps over the past few years where they have been forced to pledge allegiance to the uh, Chinese Communist Party, sing Chinese songs. It's kind of brainwashing in a way. But also because this is a Muslim minority, they've been forced to shave their beards and eat pork and drink alcohol and do all of these things that are, you know, contrary to their faith and their beliefs. So it's a very repressive campaign to try to rid the Uyghurs of their own culture and make them fit in with the Han majority. And more recently, you've been investigating one of the ways in which this repressive campaign has taken a kind of new and different turn. That's right. So for the first couple of years, uh, the Chinese authorities were actually denying the existence of these camps, but they just became irrefutable because of satellite imagery, which showed them, and because a number of people had managed to uh, leave China after emerging from these camps and to give their testimony to tell what happened to them. So China started to talk about these as vocational training camps, as if they were doing the Uyghurs a favor by teaching them how to be hairdressers and things. But what we did discover is I heard about cases where people had emerged from the camps uh, and then pretty swiftly had been re-arrested and actually arrested and placed in detention centers and then prisons for common criminals. And the theme running through this was the idea that they had been involved in financing terrorism in some way. And I talked to the family of one woman called Maila, who uh, she had transferred family savings from Xinjiang to her parents uh, and her sister who had immigrated to Australia. Okay, um, my name is Merhaba Saleh. I live in Adelaide, Australia. One day, my sister Mahira, she sent me a message from uh, WeChat and then she said, we cannot talk to you anymore. And then after that, we we just stop contact to each other. And this money was, was family money, their own savings in Xinjiang that they now needed to be able to buy a house in the suburbs of Adelaide where they were living. It became her crime. It's actually just very simple since the, my sister just sent money to our father. And we know through the Australian authorities who've been following her case that she has been prosecuted uh, and you know convicted of financing terrorism. But we don't know what kind of sentence she's gotten. The Chinese authorities and the Xinjiang authorities have not responded to our requests on that. So the basis of this woman being arrested and being prosecuted for terrorism was that she'd wired money to her family members abroad for them to be able to buy a house? Right, a c completely spurious charge. So the family showed me the uh, bank statements of showing the wires coming in. They showed me the contract that they'd signed to buy the house. The dates completely matched up. So tell me more about Maila. Who was she before this arrest happened, and, and how did you find out about her? Yeah, Maila should, uh, you know, 
have been a model citizen for the Chinese authorities. She's a very hardworking mother of three children. She's 41 years old. Uh, she's a single mother. Her husband was violent and abused her and, uh, you know, they divorced. So she was raising these three children by herself. And in the mornings, she would go out at five o'clock in the morning on her bike and sell walnuts in the markets. Uh, then she would go to her day job working for a Chinese insurance company uh, and she spoke full, she speaks fluent Mandarin Chinese. She went to Chinese school. Uh, you know, she was as sinicized, if you like, uh, as you could almost get. And at nighttime, she would tutor local Uyghur children in Mandarin Chinese language. So she was helping to spread, you know, ch the use of Chinese language within Xinjiang. And her three children go to Mandarin Chinese school and also speak Chinese. If Maela was a Mandarin speaker and seemed more cynicized, if you want to call it that, than, than many other people in her community, then why was she targeted in this way? When we asked Nairola and Mahaba, her cousin and her sister, why they thought Maela had been detained, their answer was simple. Being a Uyghur. Chinese authorities know no bounds when it comes to their efforts to sever the links between people in Xinjiang and their relatives in the outside world. So today, you know, there's a social media app in China called WeChat, which is the main messaging platform. It's like Facebook and WhatsApp and things all combined into one. Uh, and Uyghurs are not able to communicate on WeChat, which is heavily monitored by the state with their family members in the outside world. You know, if anybody was to message them or to call them on a normal phone in some way, if they had incoming contact with the outside world or outgoing for that matter, they would, uh, you know, be punished by the authorities. Just for talking to their family members? This is talking to their family members. They, you know, Maila unfriended her own sister in Australia and her cousin in Sweden from WeChat. When my sister told me that, I, I feel like, okay, it's our turn now. And then because my sister just told me, please don't call us, please don't send any message, please keep quiet, please don't do that. Like something I said, which, so we just, we just did it. They know, they're told that what happens if they have contact with the outside world is that they get punished further. So for people who have been arrested on, on these charges, what can their families do about it? Or do they have any legal recourse or any ability to get more information from the Chinese government? Yeah, it was extremely difficult for them that uh, there is no uh, rule of law in this situation. The Maila, you know, has not seen a lawyer. The conviction rate for these kind of prosecutions is almost 100%. You know, there's no sense of any justice being involved here. And to appeal through the Chinese system is would be futile. You know, there's no way to do that. So this family, they've really been agonizing about what to do about it, about whether to stay quiet in the hope that Maila will just be released or whether to speak out and to try to shine a light on her situation. And they feel, you know, so helpless now that they've decided to speak out. That's why they ended up talking to me about her situation, because they hope that by talking about who Maela is, you know, not just making her another statistic in Xinjiang, that they will be able to, um, you know, show what's going on with her and hopefully win her release. But of course, there's a risk that that could backfire. There is a risk. And I mean, the biggest risk here is to Maela's children. This is Nirola. 
my parents taking care of her three kids. And uh, my mom has been told the kid, oh, your mom is a teacher now. She has to go to a school, be a teacher, be a patient. When her student get graduate, then your mom will come home. This is what my mom has told the kid all the time. They know their mom has been taken away, but I'm not very sure or they really know the mom has been like a detained what we've seen over the past few years is that the Chinese authorities have taken children into special kind of orphanages that they've set up, which is a different form of brainwashing where these children are, you know, so-called sinicized in their own way. So the risk now is by them speaking up that the children will be taken away to an orphanage and, you know, another link to the family will be broken. Um, so the family did really agonize over this. And Nairola told me she felt like she was playing Russian roulette with her family's lives because they just didn't know what to do about it. But in the end, they decided that they had to speak out and try to do everything that they could to help their family members inside Xinjiang. We keep quiet and we were really afraid of like yeah, how Chinese government going to react if we didn't. I and Marhaba decided... If we keep quiet, we're probably going to face a situation then like Mayra going to face a death penalty or life sentence. And that is a risk we couldn't take. And that is a consequences we cannot face. That's, that's why I and Marhaba decided to speak up. So what do we think might happen to Maila? Well, we don't know. We don't know how long she's been sentenced for, uh, you know, whether it's months or years. There's no transparency whatsoever on this. But her family hopes that by talking about her and by showing uh, who she is, that this will lead to pressure on the Chinese authorities to release her. Anna Fifield is the Beijing bureau chief for The Washington Post. What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity Personalized Planning and Advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC. And brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And now, one more thing. This year's Nobel Prize in Chemistry. Good morning and welcome to the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences. Most years, it's awarded for projects that sound almost incomprehensible to the average person. For the directed evolution of enzymes. For the phage display of peptides and antibodies for developing cryo-electron microscopy for the high-resolution structure determination of biomolecules in solution. But this year, the Nobel Committee recognized a scientific achievement that regular people are actually very familiar with. The Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences has today decided 
to award the 2019 Nobel Prize in Chemistry jointly to John B. Goodenough, M. Stanley Whittingham, and Akira Yoshino for the development of lithium-ion batteries. Lithium-ion batteries are everywhere in our lives. They're in our cell phones, they're in pacemakers. The Tesla Roadsters are powered by lithium-ion batteries. So this is celebrating something that has had a profound impact on us. My name is Ben Garino. I'm a science reporter at The Washington Post. Lithium is special among the metals. It's the lightest element that exists as a solid, but it's very, very reactive. It's very rare to find pure lithium on Earth because it reacts with air, it reacts with water. So what they did is they tamed this metal and to do so, you have to take advantage of its property as, a, as an ion. Some of these batteries used to weigh literally tons, but as you can make them smaller, as you can make them lightweight, they become portable. So the reason why our cell phones don't weigh pounds and pounds is because we have these very durable, very powerful, lightweight, rechargeable batteries. I think batteries are one of the most exciting technologies that we have coming forward in terms of energy. So you have this great storage capacity that's super helpful for renewable sources that might fluctuate. So if you have solar power that's dependent on solar energy that's coming from the sun that you can't always predict, it'll be constant. Or similarly, wind power that's dependent on non-constant wind, then you need great storage solutions and, and rechargeable batteries offer that. This is a good recognition of the work that's been done, but there's a lot more exciting things to come. Ben Garino is a science reporter at The Post. And that's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. Recently, we heard from Robin, a fan of the show. She said that she likes to binge listen to episodes of Post Reports while she's hand-spinning yarn. If you want to binge listen while you're hand-spinning yarn, find our whole episode archive at postreports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity Personalized Planning and Advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC, and brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC.